evening. I'm really excited to be back with you. Um, I hope you guys were um, as blessed um, as I was to be um, under, under the teaching of Ellie and Alicia and how they walked us through the book of Esther. Um, and tonight, I get the great privilege of, of batting cleanup. Um, so we're going to have a really good time working through the last two chapters. And those chapters are a little bit challenging. And I think in order to be able to really understand what the chapters are going to present to us, it will help us to get a better grip of what, um, what is maybe setting a little bit more of the culture or the setting so that we can better understand and appreciate some of the decisions that are going to be played out in the final chapter. If I knew how to turn off my little ding on the computer, I would do that. So, but I don't, so we'll just pretend. We'll just work through it, okay? Um, one of the things I wanted to be able to do was to be able to set the stage. Um, we've, we are going to get the final view. Uh, the first chapter is going to open up with giving us an overview. Thank you, Emma. See, if you're under a certain age, you just know how to do those things. But the chapter is going to give us an overview um, in the first couple of verses, um, an ending. We're going to see how the final day, as it approaches, how it plays out. But we're not going to be able to fully appreciate that day unless we have a context that we can grab a hold of that will help us understand what was that really like. And we don't have to go all the way back thousands of years in history. We can actually go quite quite close to the history in our, uh, in our pre more near presence, and that is uh, during World War II. And so some of, um, as I was doing research for this chapter, there was quite a bit of um, presentation and um, journaling and uh, testimony that was given to people, Jewish people, who would actually celebrate what we're going to discuss tonight, Purim, even in the concentration camps. So this historical event that we're going to wrap up tonight would set a tone and a way of thinking about God's intervention, specifically with his people, his Jewish people that he chose as his nation. But it also has great implications then for how God intervenes in our own lives. So with that, there was a, a boy by the name of Abram. Um, he grew up in a little rural town in Germany. And in that town, he on every given afternoon or Saturday morning would be out playing with the other neighborhood boys. There was a group of six of them. Some of them were Christians. Some of them were Jewish. And some of them had no faith at all. And at even, any given time during the week or during the course of the year, they would participate in different religious activities. But the one thing that brought them together was a commonality of a favorite pastime that they liked to do that happened over in that far-off country, the USA, and that was baseball. So whenever they could get together, they would find an empty field, and the boys of this small town would pick up a game. They'd grown up that way. Life had been good and consistent for most of Abram's life. But then something dramatic happened that would change the course of his life and his communities forever. On November 9th to November 10th in 1938, in an incident now known as Kristallnacht, Nazis in Germany would torch and burn synagogues, they would vandalize Jewish homes, schools, and businesses, and they would kill that evening close to 100 Jewish people. In the aftermath of Kristallnacht, also known as the Night of Broken Glass, some 30,000 Jewish men were arrested and sent to Nazi concentration camps. German Jews had been subjugated to repressive policies since 1933 when Nazi Party leader Adolf Hitler became Chancellor of Germany. However, prior to Kristallnacht, these Nazi policies had primarily been nonviolent. After that night, conditions for German Jews grew increasingly worse. During World War II, Hitler and the Nazis implemented their so-called final solution 
to what they referred to as the Jewish problem and carried out the systematic murder of some 6 million European Jews in what we call today the Holocaust. That gives us a better picture of what life was as these Jewish people now living in the Persian Empire faced, leading up to Mordecai's original edict. Remember, it couldn't be reversed. So they are now, for 11 months, waiting to see how this would play out. Now, we already know that the edict had, there had been a second edict, right? And that was Mordecai's edict that would reverse the conditions of Haman's original edict. And so if we look at the original one, just so we can remember, what was it that they were anticipating? So Haman's edict ordered the Persian people, much like Hitler's edict for the conditions that the Jewish people in Germany would face, it ordered them or gave them permission, legal authority to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young, old, women, and little children included. This day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, would be the specific day in which our restraints would be held back and they could do to the Jewish community what they wanted. They also were allowed to plunder their goods. Now, Abram, who had grown up in Germany, in that rural community, with neighbors, with boys that he grew up playing with, when this night happened, a crystal knock, his father's business was ransacked. It was destroyed and plundered. The glass through the window in the front of the shop was broken. That night wouldn't just cost his father their business, but his mother in the chaos and the looting would lose her life that evening. His father would be one of the many that were rounded up and would be taken off to a concentration camp. And Abram would never see his parents again. That night gives us a better taste of what it would have been to wake up on the 13th day of the 12th month of Adar. Even though the edict had been, second edict had been given, that then reversed the conditions so that the Jewish people could still protect themselves or they could instrumentally kill or de destroy those who were their enemies. But it wouldn't have changed the fact that you're preparing for war. And so sometimes when we read through the text, we lose some of the seriousness of the impact of what that would have been like. And the first two verses are giving us an overview, so we, in essence, already know the outcome. We know how the turn of events happens, but if we put ourselves in those months leading up to, what do you think that must have been like? Just like in the stories or the testimonies of those who did survive the Holocaust, they knew that all of a sudden going to school, going to the market, going out in public was now a potentially dangerous endeavor. Because the ruling authorities of the land had deemed that your life was not valuable. And so this is the condition or the mindset. Can you imagine taking your two little children to go buy bread at the local market in Persia during those months leading up to the edict where you know at any given place there are enemies. There are those who are already planning and, and intending to carry out ill intent, ill intent towards you. And so these are the conditions that the Jews were living under. But also, there was something that God was doing. We see God's intervention in that he is, he is turning the tables, if you will, on what, what had been intended for their evil and their ultimate destruction. So, if we look into verse 1 there in chapter 9, it starts off like this. Now, in the twelfth month, month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out. On that very day, when the enemies of the Jews 
worked to gain mastery over them. So that's the, that's the setup. We know what's going to happen. We know that they understand that there are those who are their enemies that are out to get them. And this is the day. The day dawns, right? Um, the sun begins to shine and light begins to pour over the, the city. And all of a sudden, whatever it was, the first action takes place, whatever that looked like. And the enemies had hoped to have mastery or victory over the Jews, but something else occurs. The reverse happened, and the Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. Now, that piece is going to be important. That's an important piece that we want to make sure that we highlight those who hated them. The idea is that the Jews weren't just out on a killing spree. They were specifically targeting those whom they believed were out to kill them. The, the matter of the day would have been to kill or to be killed. Most of us can't relate to that reality. It's so far removed from us. And yet this is, this is the setting that we have to now interpret or, or hear the story being told in. These are dire times. And so as that day dawned, that was the intent. The enemies of the Jews thought, We've got this. These are a, an obscure people. They are insignificant. There's not that many of them. We will surely wipe them out. But God had other plans. We have seen how a minority group, the Jewish people, living under foreign rule, the Persian Empire, have through evil forces come to the near brink of extinction. Satan has always been behind the destruction and annihilation of God's chosen people throughout history and as recorded in the book of Esther. But God is faithful to his promise and intervenes in the historical narrative for the preservation of his people and the glory of his name. This is a true peripety. Remember we learned that word, that narrative term, that literary term, that is that reversal of fortunes. And this is only possible because of God's intervention. Karen Jobs writes in her commentary on the book of Esther, God's absolute sovereignty is displayed magnificently in the great paradox that even Satan's wrath and retribution working through worldly powers is nevertheless constrained by God's eternal decrees. And so in other words, whatever Satan can throw out there, Satan is behind ultimately those world powers, those seemingly human decisions, political systems, authorities that, that, that appear to on the surface just be playing themselves out. Satan is behind and has intent for evil, but God, is orchestrating for his purpose, and his will will not be thwarted. God works concurrently through the very forces that Satan means for evil to bring about his perfect will. Now, that's not just important for us to understand to rightly interpret the book of Esther. That's important to understand because I need to rightly interpret the circumstances that I face today. That makes a big difference. Matter of fact, it might make all the difference in my life. Right? So God is working concurrently through the very forces that Satan means for evil to bring about his perfect will. Now, this isn't the first place that this shows up in Scripture. We can go all the way back to the book of Genesis, and we can find in the very end of Genesis the story of Joseph. Joseph, remember, is sold off into slavery by his brothers. They hated him. They had ill intent and ill will towards him. They actually wanted him dead. But they ended up just saving, selling him to some slave traders who happened to be going by so that they got some money for him. Seemed like a good deal. They figured he'd end up dead anyways. But by a turn of events and God's intervention, God orchestrates uh, for Joseph to rise to a position of power. And that's a whole other fantastic story that we'll save for another time. But at the end of Genesis, Joseph now being confronting, being reunited with his brothers, confronts them, and he makes this incredible statement, which 
just falls in line with exactly what we see being played out in the book of Esther. Joseph would state in the final chapter of the book of Genesis that, as for you, and Joseph is saying, he's looking at his, his brothers and he's saying, as for you, you intended evil against me. And I, and I love that piece. He doesn't whitewash it. He doesn't say, you know, you didn't really understand what you were doing. You were really jealous, and it was too bad that our father had poor parenting skills, and so that led to your, you know, your poor state, and then you did evil against me. He doesn't whitewash it in any way. He lays the responsibility at their own choice. You meant it for evil. But then he makes this incredible statement. But God meant it for good. It is God's intervention that makes the difference. He takes what seems to be the ordinary consequences of evil intentions, whether they are, are intentionally done or unintentionally. Remember, remember as we, we always remind ourselves that our heart is what? Deceitful and desperately wicked. That means my actions, not yielded to the living God, are actually wicked in my heart's motivation. Okay? I just may not express it the same way as selling my brother or sister off into slavery. I may not express it that way. So my intent, if it's out of my fleshy heart, is still, is still not for the love of God or the love of others. It's self-motivated. So God is saying, I will even take back the unintentional evil that you are choosing out of your selfish heart and I will still orchestrate, orchestrate that for your ultimate good and my glory. And that's not an Old Testament concept. That is carried out all through the New Testament. We see that same thing picked up again, ultimately in the greatest display, the greatest parapetty ever put into literary form is the cross. Peter, speaking to the crowd at Pentecost, would say, you... You, you who crucified him, you, I lay the responsibility, it was your choice. He came, he revealed himself. He said, this is who I am, and you rejected him. And not only did you say, no, not only do we not want you as a Messiah, we want you dead. But then he makes this great statement. It was at the hand or the will of the Father. It was God's good intentions from the foundations of the earth to send his son to die on the cross. And he orchestrated it through the seemingly free will of God. Both of them are work. God's divine intent at work, not just through scripture, not just through the Old Testament, through Joseph's life and Esther but also at the cross. And his work is in us transforming and intervening what is intended for evil, for good. And that's exactly what Romans 8.28 promises. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. How many Jews that morning when the sun dawned didn't know what the outcome would be. They didn't know if they and their children and their loved ones would still be alive. But it was because of God's divine intervention that the outcome is reversed and his, their good and his glory is accomplished. In verse 2, it continues with giving us an overview. It tells us that the Jews gathered in their city throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. So again, they had not only time to consider, right, what their enemies might do to them, but they also can prepare to defend themselves. And that is what they did. They defended themselves. And we have to assume that that meant that they probably took some practical steps. Like I was thinking of an old western that I had seen where they're up in this cabin, they know that they're going to be attacked, and so they board up all the windows, and they make some little slits so they can poke their rifle through, you know, and, and shoot any, any anybody, any moving target that comes in its direction, right? So I imagine, did they take those precautions? 
I remember hearing from a friend who's a missionary in Egypt when they were first having those um, riots that were taking place. And his neighborhood had to shut down the street. They barricaded both ends, and the men came out and defended to protect their property and their lives with whatever they could get, shovels and picks and um, sticks. Whatever they had that they could defend themselves with, that is what they did to protect their community. And I can imagine it probably looked much the same that day. But that day, God would intervene in a, in a dramatic way. So the, the, so the Jews gathered in their cities. They're preparing for this day. They're preparing to protect themselves. But also they have a plan to seek out those who they know are wanting harm to harm them. So then it goes on in the second part of the verse. And it says, and no one could stand against them. And it makes a statement, for the fear of them had fallen on all people. So I want to take that piece. I want us to hold on to that that last end of verse 2. And then let's read verse 3. And we're going to read a very similar statement at the end of verse 3. So we know that the people, it says, the general population of the Persian people groups had a fear of the Jews. Then it goes to verse 3. All of the officials of the provinces, the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. So we have two interesting statements that are, are, that are in verse 2 and 3. Both of them end with this idea that there's a fear now of this obscure Jewish group that they were quite happy to wipe off the face of the earth and fear of Mordecai. Now, I had to ask myself, what is that about? Did, did, did it suddenly become that as these months are progressing and they're leading up to the day when the, their enemies are going to have mastery over them, they want to attack them and wipe them out, are they beginning to look around and go, oh, my goodness. I, I mean, have you seen that? The Jews, they, they have some pretty good warriors in their group. They've got some good military strategies and, and, and I'm getting a little bit concerned. Was it that they were thinking that somehow they've got some missiles or some weaponry that, that's going to be a, a real threat now to the Persian people? Is that what's happening? Or somehow they're looking at Mordecai and they're thinking, man, this, this guy's really intimidating. I don't think we can interpret verse 2 and 3 in light of that. There has to be something else going on. Is it that the people all of a sudden just have a great fear of the Jews and a fear of Mordecai? Or is it that the people recognize that there is some kind of divine intervention that has supernaturally changed the events and the course of the, the um, circumstances that they are facing? I believe they didn't fear the Jews or Mordecai, but they feared the God behind them. Does that make sense? And I think that's a bigger reversal than just the current circumstances. Because if we go all the way back to the Exodus, remember where we first started? Remember the people are coming out. God has brought his chosen people out of bondage in Egypt. The then ruling power of the day. He has decimated them through supernatural plagues and then the parting of the Red Sea. He has put himself on display to save his people from destruction. And now their first venture out into the desert, they are attacked by the Amalekites. And remember the Amalekites would attack from behind the ones who were sick, um, pregnant women, little children, those who were at the end, this tail end of this mass of humanity that was moving now to where God would show them. And then it has that statement that's recorded that it wasn't just that they, they attacked in a cowardly and vicious and inhumane way, but that they had no fear. 
Remember, they attack. And one of the things that makes that statement unique is that when God had put himself on display, the Amalekites said, we've seen you, God, and we have no reverence, no respect, and no honor. We will not hear you. But now, the Persians, fast forward almost a thousand years, the Jews, once again, being taken advantage of, in threat of utter destruction and annihilation, God supernaturally puts himself on display. This time, he doesn't supernaturally bring down ten plagues. He doesn't part any seas. But nonetheless, he supernaturally intercedes in what seems to be the mundane and ordinary working of human decision. And God putting himself on display is seen. And the people of Portugal, we hear that God. Does that make sense? It is a true reversal of fortunes, right? So we see God bringing about the, the, the presence of who he is, his power and his majesty, even though it's in a different way. And that gives me great hope. Because that is much the way that I see God working and orchestrating through circumstances in my own life. What seems to be the ordinary decisions that either Carl and I are making or those are making around me, I have to remember that it is also still under the sovereign, divine concurrence of a loving God who is orchestrating, bringing those circumstances under his will and forcing them to be and that gives me great hope. And I'm sure it gave his people hope in that moment. So it goes on then to verse 4. And it talks about how Mordecai was great in the king's house. His fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. God continues, like he had done historically with Joseph. He continues to raise Mordecai to positions of power for the preservation of his people. And now we've had those first four verses give us a general overview, but now we get to go have a personal, a more, a more close-up. This next little vignette happens somewhere inside the palace. I can picture maybe a high wall or a balcony that has a great view of the citadel, and there is now Queen Esther. And she's tentatively looking down on the city, and what must it have been like for her that day? She's safe, she's protected. But her people, the people whom she had now chosen to identify with, that she had risked her life for, are now out there. And they are at the mercy of however this is going to play out. Remember, verses 1 through 4 kind of gave us an overview. We know the end. We know God reverses the fortunes. We know God gives a great victory to the Jewish people. But Esther wouldn't have known that starting off that day. So there she is. She's waiting and watching, and reports begin to come in. And it's somewhat significant because it's not just anybody who comes to give her an update. It is King Ahasuerus himself. So the king comes, and he says to Esther in verse 12, In Susa, the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the ten sons of Haman. And so he comes to her, and he's somewhat surprised. He doesn't know how the outcome is going to go either. And so now it's coming to the close of the day. Maybe the sun is beginning to set behind the city, and he's coming, and he's saying, man, here's the final update. It looks like the Jewish people have actually had an incredible victory. They've killed 500 people, 500 men, just in the citadel alone. And that includes the ten sons of Haman. And so then he makes this statement, and we know that he thinks that's significant because he says then, what then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? If they've been this successful here, just in Susa, what will be the report? How successful have they been in all of my kingdom? He then turns to her and he says once again, what is your wish? It shall be granted you. What and what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. 
And so we have King Ahasuerus who yields to nobody. We've already seen that he's a tyrant. We see he can make just arbitrary and kind of crazy decisions. And yet, once again, God turns the heart of the king and he asks Esther, what else is that that you want? Is this enough for you? Or what else can I do? And so she responds. And we're going to ponder a little bit of her response because I think we have to understand some of the context that we've set up so that we can really interpret this accurately. So the king, and so in verse 13, he turns to Esther. He asks her, whatever it is, it will be fulfilled. And Esther said, if it pleases the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So Esther will make two requests. The first one is that she is calling for a second day of killing inside the city of Susa. So we are going to give us a kind of a, a, a perspective that we might be able to grab a hold of. If the United States represented then the Persian Empire, then Washington, D.C. would be like the city of Susa. It was the ultimate seat of power where most of uh, the time Ahasuerus, the king, would rule and reign his empire from. So she's asking within these city limits, not in the whole empire, but just within the city of Susa, she asked for a second day of killing, a second day where the Jews would have permission to kill their enemies. And we have to ask ourselves, History would actually record her in very vindictive or icy cold ways. That she just wanted to, you know, to get uh, back at the people whom she thought had threatened her people. And so I, I don't think we can come to that conclusion. So it's kind of like this. Um, Carl and I, maybe a little bit more me than Carl, are on a, um, a murder she wrote with Angela Lansbury. Who's seen that great show, right? I mean, it's like a good detective recipe, okay? So, so the, basic, the basic formula is that somebody has done something, and you have to go back, you have to look at the facts of the situation, and then try to go back and see who would have the right motive and means to, to fit the facts that we see. So it's a little bit of detective work, and that's what we need to do to rightly understand what is going on with Esther. Ellie told us in the very beginning, the scriptures don't give us all of the heart motivation. It doesn't tell us, here's what Esther was thinking. It only gives us, here's what Esther asked for. But we have to, I think, in context, understand why she might have made that decision. Why would she ask for a second day of killing in the city of Susa, as well as for the ten sons of Haman's the ten bodies of Haman's sons to be put on display. Those are the two things she's asking for. And I think our context um, gives us some of those clues. So, number one, let's go back to, let's go back to what was the original decree? What did God say about the Amalekites? Way back at the beginning, back in Exodus, it's repeated in Deuteronomy, it's actually written in part of before they even go into the land, God makes this statement. Remember and do not forget what? Don't forget what the Amalekites did. And he wants them to be blotted off the face of the earth. What they did was significant. And remember, it's not just tied to the violence that they did against the Jewish people, but also that they had no fear of God when he had made himself known. It was significant to them. And so there was a promise that God had made a negative promise to the, the people that were the descendants of the Amalekites. So now fast forward another 500 years, and we get to the story of Esther. And what is the hinge point or the turning point that awakens Mordecai? It's the exaltation or the raising up of Haman. And it's significant, and this is why we have to understand the context, because Haman is a descendant of whom? Anybody remember? He's an Amalekite. He's specifically a descendant of Agag. He is an Agagite. That is his historical um, ties. And 
knows it. That's why the scriptures put it that way. And uh, Mordecai is also a descendant. He happens to be from the same tribe as Saul. So now you have, out of 1 Samuel chapter 15, the, the picture becomes clear. You have Saul, who is the first king of this new nation. They've called now for a king. God says, okay, I'll give you a king, but he has to be obedient to my voice. He has to hear and obey. Remember? And so Saul's first charge was what? Remember, don't forget the Amalekites. So your first, your first commissioning as king is to go and blot the Amalekites out, blot their memory from the face of the earth, completely wipe them out. And did Saul obey? One of the things that Saul did was he preserved the life of the Amalekite king, King Agag, and the best of the sheep and the cattle and the flocks and the, and, and the donkeys, whatever other livestock were part of that culture. He preserved the best. He took some of the honey. And God immediately removes him from being king over Israel because he will not tolerate a king who will not give himself obedience. So now... We have Esther makes a hard decision. Is it possible that Esther, who just like Mordecai, knows her history? The minute, the minute we hear that Haman is an Agagite, would have pulled back all of that history for both Mordecai and Esther because they knew it well. And she looks out at Susa and she says, I know all of the Amalekites, all of the enemies of our people have not been gathered up. And so she calls for a second time to make sure that she would have complete obedience to what Saul was unfaithful to complete. So she makes a hard decision when, again, that's hard for us to comprehend because we don't live in that time period we don't know what it's like to wake up one day and find out that your neighbor is out to seek your destruction. Whether that means your death, or whether that means you're sent off to a death camp, or whether that means I'm taking your property, or I'm going to intimidate your life or make it impossible for you to live in peace here. It's hard for us to comprehend that reality, but we know. Just in our recent history, we can look back to the Holocaust and we can see how quickly people will play that out. And so Esther, looking out, saying, for the preservation of my people and for the, the obedience to God and his decree, I will ask for a second time. She also asked for, for one more thing, and that was that the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. Now, as a kid, that was always confusing to me because I'm like, did they die on the first day? Did they die on the second day? What, are, what does that mean? What that means is that was a wartime tactic. Okay, anybody who's seen a good um, wartime movie or some epic drama where there's a big battle scene, one of the things that they typically do is then on the outskirts, they would go and they would strategically hang their enemies' bodies that would be desecrated usually. And it was a message to their enemies to say, don't mess with us. This is what happens when you attack us. And so she's making a broad statement to anybody else who would in the future think about rising up against the Jewish people. It was to ensure their safety. And so we see her making two hard decisions that I'm guessing had a lot of thought and intention and were more historically tied to wanting to complete what Saul had been unfaithful to finish and wanting to make sure that she had full obedience to the God who she had seen orchestrate the circumstances of her own life. There's another clue um, that I think gives us an idea of why 
she makes that decision, and also what was the intent of the Jewish people. Three times in verses 10, 15, and 16, it will make this statement. It gives, uh, it goes on and gives a description of how successful they were, how many of their enemies they were able to kill. But then at the end of these three verses, it makes this, uh, this, this verse, but they laid no hands on the plunder. But they laid no hands on the plunder. But they laid no hands on the plunder. Now, it's interesting. Mordecai's second edict that reverses the first edict that Haman had sent out gives them authority or permission to plunder the homes or the businesses of the, or the properties of their enemies. They legally had the right to do it. Persia, King Ahasuerus, said, you can plunder. But what's interesting is scripture makes it clear three different times that even though they did kill their enemies, they would not plunder their property. Isn't that interesting? But if we go back again to the command that was given to Saul, he's specifically and explicitly told not to plunder the Amalekites. And it was a continual edict. In other words, whenever the Israelites would, what they would call, be participants in having to kill their enemies, it was typical of God to remind them not to take the plunder. So even though the Jewish people had legal permission by King Ahasuerus and with the ruling authorities to do so, it shows us that their hearts were being obedient to another authority that was higher than King Ahasuerus. It helps us understand that there is a greater context and an acknowledgement of a greater power and greater authority that they were answering for. They didn't take the plunder. They were being obedient to the living God. So this all happened on the 13th day of the month of Adar. And on the 14th day, they rested and made that day a day of feasting and gladness. Can you imagine the day after? Can you imagine the day after the sun goes down and they can finally say, are we okay now? Are are we all accounted for? Did my husband come back? Families would have gathered together. They would have begun to celebrate. Just like the first cries of, Warfare would have started that day off. I'm sure the first cause of celebration would have said, Praise God, he has seen us through. And the merriment and the rejoicing and the food would have begun to flow. It would have spilled out into the streets. They would have been rejoicing. And if we understand the context of everything we've read, who would they be rejoicing in? They understood, as did the Persians. Remember who for fear of them, understood that there was a greater power at work than just the human element in their conflict. God was being put on display. So this begins what today Jews still celebrate, the the celebration of Purim. The, The term Purim comes from that word Pur, which is actually a Persian word, but it means literally to cast lots. Now, it's not the first time that we see this. There's a number of different places recorded in Scripture. A famous one that you might remember is with Jonah. When he's in the ship, being tossed and, and turned by the sea because of his disobedience, the members of the crew cast lots to see which one is responsible for this storm that we're in. And whose lot do you think got drawn? So God, in his divine concurrence, is orchestrating even seemingly random choices of man to orchestrate his divine goodness and purposes for our lives. So Purim, as it would become known, would become the celebration of God's divine salvation and rescue of their people. Again, a celebration that would be faithfully observed 
and celebrated even in the camps of Auschwitz. When God intervenes, we have to understand some things about who he is. Otherwise, we might wrongly interpret God. I work a lot in counseling. Most people come to counseling because they're experiencing some kind of a trial or suffering or, or conflict that they want to resolve. In most of those circumstances, it's revealed that they have determined who God is based on their circumstances. In other words, if my circumstances are good, then God must be good. But if my circumstances are difficult or hard or chaotic or crazy or uncomfortable or painful, then God cannot be good. And yet that's not what Scripture presents. Scripture presents a God who is always good. As a matter of fact, there's three There's three truths about God. Well, there's many more, but if we can just hold on to these three truths about who God is and interpret or look through the lens of these truths to see our circumstances and our relationships, it will dramatically change how we experience them. So the three truths about who God is is that he is always loving. It's in his character and his nature. It isn't just that he acts loving. It's that he is the essence of love. He is the standard of love. He cannot do anything that is not an absolute expression of selfless, unconditional love towards others. He can't operate any other way. The second lens is that he is all wise. That means under any given set of circumstances, his decision in the circumstance is absolutely the wisest and best one. And the third truth about God is that he is sovereign. He is in absolute control, and he is the only one who can make the most loving and most wise set of circumstances and relationships come to fruition. If we can interpret our circumstances and our relationships through that lens, God is loving always. God is wise always. God is sovereign always. It will dramatically change how we not just perceive, but how we experience our circumstances and our relationships. When um, when Carl and I uh, were young, just before we even started dating, we both had um, an experience in working in mental health. We both had a background in working with at-risk youth, and we both had a passion and a desire to adopt. And we got together, that confirmed, that was one of those things that we confirmed with each other, that yes, someday you would be very interested in adopting. You'd be open to that. After we had our first four kids, Kendra, Noah, Sophia, and Anna. Anna was about six months old. And I began to be very passionate about the idea of adoption. One of the driving factors for me was that I wanted to be able to breastfeed my adopted child. And I know that's that's really a stretch, so it was an oddity at that time, as it is today, I'm sure. But that's what I was really passionate about. And because I was still breastfeeding Anna, I would be able to continue my breast milk supply so that I could breastfeed an adopted child. So I did a lot of research on this. And there was two conditions that were primary. One, you had to be able to produce breast milk. That seems kind of logical, right? And so I'm like, hey, I got that. And two, the child or the baby had to not have been bottle fed. Maybe for a couple days they might be able to transition, but most babies would not be able to go from bottle feeding to breastfeeding because it's a different sucking motion. Once they had picked up one, it's very difficult to get them to switch over to the other. So all of my research told me that we needed to adopt an infant soon. Okay? So I uh, presented my plan to, to Carl, and, and he was more or less on the same page, right? Maybe a little bit less, but it took a little more of God's sovereignty to work in his life to bring us about to the same page. But we did get there. So they, we had a few other obstacles that would keep us from adopting, and one of them was the cost. The cost of an adoption is about twenty-five dollars to $35,000 for an infant at that time. And so that was prohibited for us. We couldn't 
get our hands on that type of money, and we tried all sorts of different schemes to try to figure out, could we do this, could we do that, and nothing would work. So Carl just said, and this was probably his out, was that, you know, if we can't have the money, it's going to have to be about this, this is all we can do, and it was a minuscule amount. Um, and, and really, he said, probably anything over $5,000, we won't be able to do. And so, you know, that was it. So I'm like, okay, I want to be able to breastfeed. That means we have to adopt now. We have to adopt an infant and can only do $5,000. That gives me my parameters, right? And how? I remember thinking, how on earth am I going to get matched, you know, here to the right child? Do you do international adoption? Do you do domestic do adoption? Do you do a state adoption? What do you do? And so I just began to move forward. Carl and I, from the early age, would just remind each other this. If we are serving and faithfully following God in the areas of his known will, right, the places that we can go to Scripture and say, it's God says to do this, then we will assume that the areas that he isn't implicit in, that, he, that we don't know what he wants us to do, we'll assume that then he is guiding those decisions as well. So we would just start moving forward. So long story short, led me to an agency in Birmingham, Alabama. Birmingham, had, Birmingham, Alabama just came online. It was the old dial-up, so it took forever to load a page. But you could get there, right? Um, so we go through the whole process. I'm, I'm doing the investigation, and I see on there that, one, they have not just infant adoption, but they actually have infants that are looking for homes. They actually had babies. Most places didn't even have children. You'd be matched with a future potential child. This, this adoption agency actually was actively looking for it. And, and my first thought was, oh, there's probably hundreds of people lined up for those babies. And, and so I'd look at their little faces and read their little bios, which you can't do anymore, but it was legal back in the day. And I would read them, and I'd be just saying, okay, Lord, I know you've got a perfect family for them. And, and I know it's not us because we're probably number 236 in line. So it's going to take us months and maybe even years. And so I contacted the agency, and we began that process and found out that, no, those babies, actually, they didn't have any families at all. They were hoping. And, and so we were one of the first ones to be in line. And so we're like, wow, that's, that's amazing. And, and, and so we started our paperwork, and we got everything going. And two weeks into our paperwork, a little boy by the name of John Sloan was born. And he was placed in a home, a foster home there, that, uh, of a couple who had been um, a fostering for this uh, Christian agency for many, many years. Um, and so one day, uh, after we had turned in our paperwork, it got a call four months into the to our uh, adoption process. And the call said, we have a baby for you. Are you familiar with the babies on our website? And I'm like, they're all over my refrigerator, the kids that I pray for them each day. And there was only three babies left. So I only had three little pictures left on the refrigerator. And they said, are you familiar with John Sloan? And I said, oh, yes, yes, we are. And so she said, if you will say yes and give me a name, I'll start the paperwork today. I'll overnight it. You can be here to pick him up in three days. And I, and I remember telling her on the phone, um, she needed a name to get everything started. I said, we'll name him after his father, Zachariah Carter Chapman. Three days later, we were on a plane to Alabama. Um, we did have uh, the agency before we took flight. Carl had to call and confirm what the price of our adoption would be. They would do the full adoption at agency price of $5,000. Right? Supernatural. We get there. The foster family says, do you want to come visit him, see him for the first time in our home? We'd love to have you for dinner. You can see him, and then the next day will be your adoption. You won't be able to take him with you, but you'll get to at least meet him for the first time. We showed up 45 minutes early and drove around the neighborhood because we were so excited and so nervous about meeting Zach. So we knocked on the door, and, and this wonderful southern couple um, invites us in with big hugs and and issues us into their living room where there's this beautiful little baby sitting in a bouncy swing. And as the evening progresses and I get a chance to hold him and change his diaper, um, she looks at me and she goes, you know, I just wanted to let you know he hasn't gained much over his original birth weight because we haven't been able to get him settled on a formula. We've tried a dairy formula and a soy, and both seem to be upsetting to him. 
So the doctor kept telling me this baby needed to be breastfed. I hadn't told anybody. I didn't know how they would respond. And I was just sitting there going, How could God have known that this baby needed to be breastfed and he would stir somewhere over on the other side of the country this mama to want to adopt just for the time where she could still fulfill that need? So I made a plan. I took note of that. I always think of it like when uh, Scripture talks about in Luke when Mary ponders these things in her heart. I knew it was God. I knew it was evidence of his fingerprints on this process. So then the next day, after we had adopted him in the morning, we went through a beautiful ceremony there at the agency. They prayed over us. They prayed with us. They sent us off to a county judge who would do the official legal adoption. The judge, in the first, the first moment that we met him, he um, invited us into his office. He looked at us and said, contrary to popular belief, it's not a good thing to roll. And we had, we kind of take a glance at each other and we're like, what did he just say? First of all, he's got a really southern accent. We can't understand. And is he talking about a war? It took us a minute to go over. Oh, the Civil War. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah, we're good with that. Like, he just thought that was really important for us on the West Coast to know. Anyways, we go through the adoption process. And because Zach's foster mom had given me a beautiful layout of his schedule. So I knew his first feeding would be coming up. She had already sent me with a bottle and the formula. As soon as we got done, I said, I want to let him get hungry, but let's go back to the hotel room. And I want to wait till he's really good and hungry, not too hungry, not too upset, but then I want to just try and see if I'll be able to nurse him. Every research that I had done, every book I had read told me it wouldn't be possible. He's three and a half months old. He won't transition to breastfeeding. So I waited. I let him cry a little bit so I knew he was good and hungry. I held him. I let him, you know, just get used to me, and I was trying to get, you know, get to know him. And then I, there in the quietness, you know, of our hotel room, I nursed him for the first time, and he took to it, and I would nurse him till just under a year. Supernatural. That was God's fingerprints. Now we would flash forward almost 10 years. It would seem that 10 years later, on a very dark winter night, that our worlds, the plates that we were spinning continually, were coming down and they were crashing all around us. Carl and I, like at three in the morning, were literally sitting in our living room and Carl said those dreaded words that had gone through my mind a million times. This was a mistake. This wasn't what we signed up for. This wasn't what we had hoped for. And I had thought it, but I would never dare say it out, say it out loud. And yet, Carl, in that moment, he's looking at me and saying, you should never have adopted him. And all of a sudden, this rush of truth came back to me, and I said, no, remember. Remember that he is the baby that could only be breastfed, and I was the mom who could do it. Remember, we could only afford the 5000 and 5000 was the fee that they were asking. Remember this detail and this detail and this detail, because in that moment when it looked like everything was falling apart, we needed desperately to be reminded that God was in control. And he was orchestrating for Zach's good and for our good an incredible gift that has continued to be challenging at times, but has continued to reward us and grow us and help to deepen our relationship with the living God and with our family. And we are incredibly grateful. But it was those moments that I would have to draw back in my memory the fingerprints that I saw of God sovereignty working in and orchestrating for our good. That is why we study the book of Luke. That is why it's recorded, so that when we look at the circumstances that seem to look like they're falling apart, we can say, no, God is sovereign, and he is working them out. World War, World War II, though the Jews would celebrate Purim, would pray that God would send a Mordecai, would send an Esther to rescue them. God did not. 
six million would die, that a remnant would be saved, and God's will would be accomplished in this supernatural, sovereign establishment of the nation of Israel. No other world events would push his people back to the land, and no other world events would allow for the nations of the world to give them their homeland back. God orchestrated miraculously his purposes, and the nation of Israel now stands today in testimony of God's faithfulness to his promises and the promises he has yet to fulfill to Israel, as well as a modern-day testimony of his sovereignty and his power at work in our day today. God has it. Even the history of the events that are unfolding all around us, whether they are personal or whether they are external, the living God is in control. So we have a couple questions that I want you guys to ponder on this evening. And then we're going to go into our time of worship. And I want you to carry these questions with you. Think through them. You can't have come tonight and not have heard of God, seen him being put on display, and walk away unchanged. You are consciously choosing to be impacted by the living God and to choose to submit yourself to him, or you are walking away saying, I reject. Those are the only two options. If you came tonight, it's because he wanted you to see him. And my hope and prayer is that you have seen him in how he has put himself on display, not just through the book of Esther, not through the testimony of even just his word, the personal testimony of my life, the lives around you as well, as even just historical events we can look at today and say, only God could have done that. So you have to ask yourself, you have to ask yourself these questions, and I'll pull them up because I don't see them appearing there. In what ways do you see the fingerprints of God in your own life? These become really important. Do you see that God has been sovereignly at work, even through what looks like disastrous events? God is still loving, wise, and sovereign. That means that his intervention in your life, while may look different than what you would choose, is always the best choice for you and is always for your good. In what ways are you determining what salvation, relief, or release from your circumstances should look like? Many times we miss the fingerprints of God because we determine what it should look like. During the Holocaust, many Jewish people were disillusioned with God because they could not see or accept that the final option was for the return to the land, that God was orchestrating something far greater and beyond just relief or release from the circumstances. Many times our salvation is is all hedged in by God changing, giving us relief or release from the circumstances that we don't want. And as long as we're looking or determining, God, this is what salvation looks like, we're likely to miss it because we're not interpreting God through the lens of Scripture, his loving hand, his sovereignty, and his wisdom, but we're interpreting him then through our circumstances. God, you're only good if you do this. And the last one is, do you fear God? That was a theme that we see reversed. We see that the Persian people genuinely have a fear of the Jewish people, right? The ones that they were, the obscure group that they were willing to annihilate, but also of Mordecai. And it can't be from a human level. It can't be that the Jews were just great warriors and they were intimidated by them. It can't be that that Mordecai could be that much of an intimidating leader, more so than Ahasuerus. It has to be that they understood that there was a power behind the Jewish people, behind Mordecai, that had orchestrated supernatural events in their favor. And that's God talks in scripture about us having a fear of God. 
but not a fear as if he's going to do us harm, a reverential honor, a respect, a fear that looks at him and says, you are God, and I will what? I will humble myself before you. That is the fear that should drive us to a loving God who in his love, in his sovereignty, and in his wisdom is orchestrating the circumstances of each of our lives for our good and his glory. So with that, let's go to a time of worship and then reflect on these questions and ask them, God, please help me to work these through with you. You can even share them with someone else, a friend that you came with or someone you do discipleship with or ask any of us. We'd love to be able to talk more about any of these questions with you.